pop-up, guerrilla, DIY or tactical urbanism. Whatever the name, temporary urban interventions are a radically new way to participate in contemporary cities. Or are they? We talk about some having very long histories, so things like squatting or graffiti or gardening, and then some being more newer, so things like parking day or restaurant day that are more uh, contemporary examples. It could mean a whole lot of things, couldn't it? I think there's actually a blog that's called itself Pop-Up City, and I think there's a book that maybe even came out of the blog. Welcome to City Road on 2SER 107.3. I'm Dallas Rogers. From guerrilla community gardens and pop-up cinemas to outdoor art installations and mobile libraries, pop-up urbanism can take many forms. Some of it is citizen-led and I think it still has that idea that it's a grassroots thing, but it's very much not anymore. So for example in the city of Sydney with the new light rail, you might have seen on George Street they put out pallets, eating, astroturf and potted plants. So it's something being used by governments. I'm talking with Amelia Thorpe from the University of New South Wales and Lee Stickles from the University of Sydney about moving beyond the simple celebratory notion of the pop-up city. The pop-up city is celebrated for putting on display alternative lifestyles or reoccupying urban space in new ways or even reinventing daily life from the bottom up. And when people participate in pop-up interventions, they often want to create a more just or sustainable city. But as Lee suggests, pop-up urbanism might be a little older than we think. So one arm of that is looking at, I guess, the built environment professions themselves, and especially architecture, and the impact of the counterculture on architectural practices. So this rethinking in the late 60s through to the 70s of what architectural practice might be, or what it should be, particularly coming from the students in the universities who went on strike, who demanded a different kind of education, and we're really thinking, hold on, we don't like what we see in terms of how architecture is practiced, Um, and so we want a different kind of architecture practice. At the moment, I've got a project where I'm looking at the the counterculture in Northern Rivers, uh, New South Wales, and the importance of building shelter, physical, the building of spaces in which to enact those countercultural values and practice and you've been digging in the archive for examples of that what type of things yeah that's right so i've got a what's called the nancy keesing fellowship at the state library to work on um australian history so in in the state library at the moment i'm i'm working through the rainbow archive (laughs) which is this archive that the state library has this kind of quite sprawling archive of all this sort of ephemeral material and so on related to the counterculture in australia so personal accounts of people settling in the northern rivers and you know building geodesic domes to live in some really quite amazing photographic archives some photographers who uh, spent time up there through the 70s documenting these various intentional communities that were springing up and i've been interviewing people in those communities and also using the oral history collection that the state library has to to go through these stories, and I'm particularly interested, as I say, in the way that the building of houses, the settling of, of land, the, the way that these groups were rethinking how they shared land, how they occupied that land, and how they built shelters for themselves 
impacted on their rethinking of all sorts of other practices, home birthing, property relations, um, education, etc. Amelia and Lee talk about the different people, places and relationships that are involved in temporary urban interventions. And they encourage us to think about the way different types of pop-up practices connect us to questions about social and spatial justice and sustainability in the city. And in many ways, pop-up urbanism is about making the people of the city everyday urban designers as a political project. I think even more than the the formal material elements, it's the people. So it's the people deciding we're going to make this a park and we're going to create a space that we invite other people into. Mm. Um, So I participated in Parking Day this year, largely because I told some people about it and they got excited and wanted to do it. Uh, And so we had old carpets, hay bales and pallets. It was a pretty um, cliched Parking Day intervention. But I think what made it was not those particular items but it was the people standing there sitting there saying come and talk to us. So could you just talk us through what parking day is and how people participate in parking day? Sure so parking day is probably the most famous example of DIY urbanism if you google parking day I don't know how many millions of hits will pop up I do recommend googling it because there's some fantastic images of parking day. Parking day people More than anything else, I would want to see the elimination of the cars and the parked cars. I don't think it's a good use of public space. I think personally, taking away space from cars and giving it to the people, uh, just pedestrians, I think is really important. Today is Parking Day. Um, it's an annual global event in which activists, designer, and community members design installations for parking stalls. What did you think of it when you saw this green it space? It blew my mind. It's real grass too, man. That as activism, it's very playful and it, it inspires and sort of delights as opposed to like you don't have to scream your message. So it started in 2005 in San Francisco where what was then a newly formed design collective called Rebar, which was two landscape architects and a lawyer, were thinking they were inspired by Gordon Matter Clark about how you might use space differently and they had this idea that if you pay a parking meter you then create a lease over the parking space and you can do whatever you like with that space and there's a a famous napkin sketch that they did in the um, in the pub over beers where they came up with ideas they had ideas of a a bed for tired office workers of a mini strip club Um, so lots of different ideas of what you might do with a parking space and the one they settled on was a cliched park. I wanted to talk to you about the kind of temporal frame of this. It seems that the whole idea of pop-up is temporary, but there seems to be a connection between the temporary and the permanent, or maybe the utility of these interventions is all in the way that they are temporary, so you experience them because you know that they're going to end. So what is the kind of temporality of, of these types of interventions? I think the temporality is very much connected to accessibility. So it means that, you know, there's lots and lots of literature on participation and how hard it is to get people engaged. But something that's small scale, it's it's cheap, it's not expensive, it's quick, means that people who might not normally get involved can get involved and that can be really significant. In the interviews I've done, people say, I did this small thing and it was amazing. I saw that I achieved something and that then inspired me to do something bigger, something longer term, something more conventionally political. And I think coming back to your point before about sort of changing the way we view and experience urban space, I think that that's 
kind of an important part of this. You see the city in a particular type of way and then you go out and you experience one of these temporary pop-up urban interventions and it kind of changes the way you view the city from that point forward. Would that be correct? It's been one of the strongest themes is this idea of ownership coming out of engaging in in DIY urban events. The idea that, yeah, you buy um, by physically creating something, by working with other people and by getting that affirmation from others who aren't involved in the project, people who might walk by and might smile or might say, great work, that that's really important to people, feeling a sense of ownership for the space or for the street or for the, the city as a whole. And people talk about that ownership as then empowering them to go on and do other things. So who are all the actors at play here? So who are the people that produce these types of events? Again, it's really diverse. Yeah. Um, I would say probably people in their 20s would be the, the main market, so people who've got time. And, and I guess going back to that idea of ownership, it's also people who don't have like you know their own home they can't be making something in their own backyard or their own house because they're you know living with their parents or they're renting or they're somehow precarious so people who really want to go out into the city and to make something what about the law in here i'm thinking about some of the more guerrilla type urban interventions that might border on being quasi-legal all the way up to you know coke running an event which i imagine is highly regulated how does the law play out in in terms of temporary urbanism the law is fascinating in that it's most of the time a gray area so there's a whole lot of laws about powers for uh, local councils or police to come and shut things down for issues of public safety so there's plenty of laws that could be used if someone wants to close something down but it's not actually clear that what they're doing whether it's legal or not um, so it's really, Rebar's idea about a lease is it's not a lease. But whether it's legal or not is really not clear. So there's a whole lot of discretion. And when, in the few examples where police are involved, it's very much connected to those ideas of ownership. If it's something that's kind of supported by the local community, the police and the rangers are, are really not going to intervene. We're seeing some of the temporary urban interventions that might be described as guerrilla activities, such as guerrilla gardening, morphing into more mainstream activities like Parking Day. And various levels of governments are latching on to the idea of pop-up urbanism, and even borrowing some of the ideas that are associated with tactical urbanism. Some governments even think that pop-up urbanism might be a quick and cheap solution to fostering participatory bottom-up city-making. And the private sector has moved into this space too. And I can't help but wonder, are these guerrilla activities becoming more mainstream and corporate? And if they are, will they lose their way as a social justice or sustainability measure? I think it's really easy to be critical of corporations getting involved in these. And it was very much when I started my research interviewing people, I was looking for that. I was looking for criticism of corporations. And no one wanted to do that. So another example is, well, I shouldn't say no one, very few people wanted to do that. So another example is IKEA. They built a, a parklet and they videoed it and they had an advertising campaign where you could see a parklet built entirely out of IKEA stuff. Um, and there was a double page spread in their catalogue with, you know, the prices for all the constituent elements of a park. And I asked people, what did they think about that? And people said, it's great. It's great that we're getting higher profile and that an organisation like IKEA is showing people that they can do stuff in the street. So I think it's, yeah, we, we might say, oh, there's problems with Coke using it to sell a product that perhaps we don't like. But the take-home is it's complicated. You're listening to City Road on 2SER 107.3 in Sydney. I'm Dallas Rogers. 
and we're talking with Amelia Thorpe and Lee Stickles about the pop-up city and temporary urban interventions like Parking Day. We've been talking about the legality of people and corporations taking the urban design of the city into their own hands and what happens when big business gets involved in the pop-up city. And now we move on to the social politics of the pop-up city and whether the pop-up city is something that everybody can participate in. Yeah, that's an important theme that's come up in the research I've done, particularly in North America, that it's white privileged people who can do this because they're not so worried about having an um, interaction with the police, whereas the migrants or the racial minorities are more likely to get in trouble. So there's an example of a guy who built a DIY crosswalk. So it was an unsafe street lobbying for the council to get involved and put in a crosswalk. They didn't, so he painted the street. He was Latino and he was prosecuted for that. There was a huge backlash from the community saying, you know, so he did have that local buy-in and that local support, but still he got in trouble for doing that. And you can certainly say it was because of his race. Yeah, I think the, the racial question's very important here. It strikes me that uh, we were just talking about homelessness and in, in many ways homeless people are performing an act of you know, DIY urbanism, but it's looked at in a very different way legally and the response to it is very different as well. So I think that legal dimension and the, and the way that the broader social frames probably frame these interventions is probably important. It probably goes back to the idea of, you know, carpet and, and, and milk crates on a street is quite hip at the moment, so it's, it fits the aesthetic and the cultural values of our time. Well, I think the legal issues are really connected to who's doing these things. So because it's legally grey, it means it is accessible for young professionals. So it's not like squatting or, you know, stuff that clearly is illegal and is risky, that you're getting, you know, the activists who are really willing to put everything on the line. And then it's not the advocacy at the other end of the big, you know, corporate lobbying or litigation that requires a lot of resources. It's, it's in the middle and it's people who are in the middle. It strikes me that the Ten Embassy, both in Canberra and recently down here in Redfern, is probably a good example of a highly politicised form of urban intervention in, in that sense. Yeah, but I think, as we were saying before, the others can be quite political as well. So that, I guess that idea of prefigurative politics, so people are you know, building something that they want to see, and then also that idea that, that triggering effect. So Mark Purcell talks about the down deep delight of democracy that you find fun and you find something playful and that's what sustains you to do more so I think they're although these things might be might seem frivolous that actually might be really important to their to their political effect what, what should the government's response be to these temporary urban interventions should there should it be as it's occurred now where you just take it a case-by-case basis at the local level or do you see some sort of heavier top-down approach being applied as perhaps more commercial players get involved? It's such a difficult question how a government should respond. I was talking to someone in a Montreal sort of semi-government organisation and she was saying it's like you don't want to leave things totally open for people because it's too hard. If you give a little bit of direction it's much easier to do it but you don't want to give too much direction so it's a really delicate balance. And here talking to local councils there's a huge diversity in the way governments operate and even in so particularly City of Sydney being a big council there's huge diversity within the council about different approaches about how people treat this stuff even just looking at how they deal with the graffiti and the split in council about how they might 
value it as street art or crime and other things kind of highlights the complexity of even dealing with something like this inside an institution. The role of the state is really interesting if you compare it to those 70s movements and 60s movements in that back then it was very much, I mean, it was the counterculture dropout, but it was very much a call for greater state intervention. So the left was then looking for the government to step in. And now we're seeing a lot less of that. There's lots more kind of we're going to the commons or we're going to do things ourselves. And you might say that's a, because the state has failed and we've given up on the state, or you might say that we've kind of taken on the neoliberalism, you know, we're accepting a whole lot of what neoliberalism is, yeah. is pushing. Another way that we could think about this, perhaps, is to think about this across the formal-informal divide. So in urban planning, we have the idea of the informal settlement and the formal settlement. So how does... How does class and race and and how does this play out in different countries across perhaps those more traditional ways of thinking about this in urban planning formality and informality so the pop-up city the blog and the book that lee mentioned and and a lot of the documentation is coming from western writers and certainly in my research i didn't want to try to do too much so i stuck to you know the us canada australia where I have a basic understanding of how things work. But there are plenty of people out there saying, you know, there's other stuff. So Jeff Howe, who was visiting here um, just last week, has done a whole lot of work documenting and pulling together other people, documenting these kind of things across across Asia, across India. It's, it's not just Western. No, it's not just Western. It never is. Amelia and Lee, thanks for joining us on City Row today on 2SCR 107.3 in Sydney, around Australia on the Community Radio Network and around the world on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at City Road Pod or look us up and listen to more episodes at cityroadpod.org. And while you're here, I want to tell you about something that I'm pretty excited about. We have a brand new City Road presenter who, as you're listening to this, is working on a couple of new City Road episodes. So listen in next time for some great new content and a brand new City Road voice. I'm Dallas Rogers. Goodbye.